Next week, just so you know, uh, we're going to be making a presentation, uh, four of us, uh, myself, Dan Reineke, Mike Sullivan, and Gary Shaw, who went to the National Prayer Breakfast this year. We're going to be talking about the prayer breakfast, so if you want to come and hear about that, great. And then the week after that, we're going to start a new series, I will, uh, on called Conversations with Jesus, and going to be working through the Gospels about some of these uh, unique kind of encounters that Jesus has with people, the questions they ask, the uh, issues that they talk about. And so we'll be kind of uh, going in that direction. So I, uh, if you're interested in that, I hope you'll uh, come back. Uh, we're looking in Matthew chapter 5 today, if you want to turn there, trying to finish out. And I'll be i will be honest with you, I'm trying to kind of conflate and put thing, several things together because I've got, I, I know you may think it's crazy, but I've got lots more dialectics in my work. <laughs> I have a lot more in my list. Uh, we did not get finished. Uh, we just quit, and uh, that's the way I do. I will t- say this. It was kind of your turn to Matthew 5 this morning. It's the first time, you know, everybody told me I'm going to love buying a Mac. Not so much. <laughs> uh, this is the first time it's ever taken four people to get the computer to work today, okay? So I'm still not a fan. Anybody want to buy a Mac? But <laughs> yeah, anybody, I know all you guys that like them, like them. And everybody keeps telling me, you're going to love it. And I'm thinking... When? When is that going to happen? Is that, hey, I bought this thing right after Christmas, okay? So it isn't like I bought it like two weeks. Not two weeks, Bob. It's been a, two months. Anyway, I'm, I'm over it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. But anyway, uh, so uh, we'll be uh, working those areas. We'll have the Mac working, uh, hopefully. Daryl keeps telling me that. But anyway, we've been looking at this passage in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've worked through it, and there's there's just lots of material in my judgment, that I've tried to to do. And I'm going to try to conflate a couple of things and get through with it today, where Jesus makes this powerful statement to the crowd, to all of these people that are following Him around. I told you last week, there is at least four groups following Jesus. The, the, The critical, the crowd, the curious, and the committed. And all in those groups, Jesus is working and operating with them. And we hear these words, You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if the salt becomes tasteless... How can it be uh, salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Now, this is where I want to dial down today on this. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, last week, uh, we tried to do this on the light issue and uh, said uh, to, that uh, the idea is that we're here, uh, the dialectic is to be salt. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago, and then to be light. Now, Jesus uh, talked about that. I told you last week that light illuminates. Remember you learned that last week? And it didn't, isn't that worth getting up out of bed? You know, Light illuminates. Boy, Cliff, you're deep. I'm not deep, I'm just muddy. And, uh, uh, but the idea of light, as we see, uh, here's a map of North Korea. When Jesus said, we're the light of the world, he had said that also in John chapter 9. I'm the light of the world. And I, and I want to suggest to us that when Jesus is referring to this here about us being the light of the world, we're sort of like the moon in that we reflect the light of God. We're not the source of it. We're, we're not the source of light or life. The Bible in the first chapter of John says, In Him was life, and it was the light of men, enlightening every person coming into the world. So Jesus is the light. 
that we, if you will, reflect. And so that picture of the moon there somewhere in the desert, that's uh, somewhere probably out, who knows. Um, but, but this idea of that we're the light of the world, and I suggested last week that in being light, that we're the light about God's nature. We, we, we reflect the light about who God is. We reflect, reflect, the, reflect the light about God's will being done. And that's a, a pretty interesting thing we dealt with last week. I thought about it later, and I know there were probably some new ideas and some new concepts. That's okay, you know, just to think about it. There's one thing about light that I uh, had failed to tell you last week is this, is that, you know, light illuminates, uh, but sometimes light can blind you <laughs> when it comes on. Uh, last summer, uh, uh, one of the guys in my department lives in Moore, Oklahoma, and the tornado went right through that area. And I called uh, Justin up in there in our Sunday school class. They're, they're great people. And they, I said, hey, do you have a, are you okay? And they said, well, we're okay, but our house is blown apart. And I said, well, come to our house. And so um, they came to our house. They have two little boys and a little dog. So our life changed pretty quickly. A <laughs> uh, couple of those little boys ask a lot of questions <laughs> that I'd never thought of ever. Now, I told you, I'm a flashlight guy. I like light. I like flashlights. And I have several flashlights laying around the house, you know, in strategic locations for, you know, in case something happens. Well, I have this one really wonderful flashlight my wife gave me a year ago Christmas under the Christmas tree when I found it. It's one of those mag lights. You know, the kind of police carry that can go like 300 yards. And it's just wonderful. I can just sit on the back porch and my dogs are in the yard and I just watch them, you know, over like that, you know, or communicate with someone in Guthrie, you know, toot, 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 toot. we do that occasionally. Uh, Jackson gets the light and he's asking me all kinds of questions about it. What's that? It's a light. Who's is it? It's mine. When did you get it for Christmas? Who gave it to, you know, we're just going down that road. And I, I'm watching Justin and Chrissy kind of look at me go, Uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize where Jackson's little hands were, but he puts that light right at me, and I'm talking about this mag light, and hits the button. <clears throat> and I'm not kidding you. I thought, i got to go to the doctor. <laughs> I have never had that much light. I, I'm sh- I couldn't see for 10 minutes. I know the pupils of my eyes do it. <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm blind. Now, I say all that to say this, that light's a wonderful thing when it's used appropriately, (laughs) and it illuminates, but there are times when light stuns us, and sometimes it's hard to look at. And sometimes when we're talking about God, I think that it's, it's, it's a feature in my thinking is this, that sometimes when we're really talking about God and who He is, there are times when I walk away and I go, oh man, I don't know if I can see anything now. You know what I mean? We're talking about God here. We're discussing this person of the great awareness. Now, that we, the things we know, we know. But some of the things we look at sometimes with him, we go, wow, that is so bright. I've got to let my eyes sort of adjust. And so I'm hoping that as we've talked over the several months and we've talked over the last few days, that the idea of being able maybe to have your eyes, if you will, sort of readjust and maybe see some things in ways you haven't seen before. Well, that's not a bad deal, is it? Sometimes for us to have our minds and hearts stretched And so I want to talk about, again, this being light about God. There's a third one here today. To be a light about God, and that's this. Boy, this is God's intent. I think our lives should reflect and be a light 
to reveal and show God's intent. What are God's intentions? And I've got two things here I'm going I'm to work through very, very quickly. Uh, and it's because there's a word, I'll give it to you here, and, and we're going to look at it. There's a word that, that only shows up a couple of times, in the, actually two times, about God. And, and, it, and it has to do with, here's the word. It's something that God seeks. Seeks. It only shows up two times. I went back to my concordance. I did all my research and looking at all that. Took my Greek New Testament. Did everything I could to say, okay, I think I can say with a high degree of, of reliability that there's some, God is intentional about a couple of things. That I think that as we're light and reflecting Him, that we ought to be intentional about. That we, that we ought to be intending. The word seek, there's a word. You, you may have already thought of a couple of them, but, but the, the idea of God's intent. God's intent. There's something God is seeking. There's, there's something intentional in the Scriptures that it tells us about God. Now, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, uh, intent. Uh, you know, every February, uh, and that's where we are now, every February, uh, the nation's top high school football players are recruited by colleges and universities, and uh, they sign a letter of... There, boy, you, you guys are... I'm telling you. Good. You're good. You're good. Uh, a letter of intent... In that letter, the NCAA says it gives the student the, uh, the opportunity to get the school to obligate themselves to a, a scholarship and what it will be. The college accepts the player's intent and give them a scholarship. Uh, the condition set forth once the, the and I'm reading this here, once uh, I've never signed one, okay? You know, I, I won't even say what I thought. Okay. Once a player signs it, a particular college, no other colleges can continue to recruit them. There are all kinds of uh, rules and regulations whenever somebody finally signs a letter of intent. They're saying, I'm going to this school. And uh, you're probably, you probably know, you know the University of Oklahoma recruiting class in 2014. Uh, there are over 26 signees uh, on that. And the day of the college football letter signing and the class comprises of uh, two junior college transfers, 11 different positions, 24 high school athletes. And the school that still, or the state that still produced the most signees is Texas. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Not really. Not really. Letter of intent. Now I'm going to ask you something here. I want you to look at that. I want you to think about how we reflect or what is God's intent in life. I'm going to like, I want you to look at a picture. Now some of y'all have seen this, so don't yell it out. Smarty pants that have traveled all over the country or the world. Okay? I want you to look at this. I use this with my students. This painting is on the uh, ceiling. Thank you. I was looking for that word. Yeah, sure. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And it is the picture of the creation of Adam. But, you know, in this picture, and I'm going to show you here in a moment the rest of it, that in this picture, I just want you to, don't, don't say this out loud. When you look at that picture, and you see that on one hand, huh, nice, huh? On one hand, oh, here we go. Y'all didn't catch that. Y'all didn't catch that. On one hand, there's a hand that is reaching and stretching. On the other hand, it's rather limp and maybe even lackadaisical. You know what I ask my students? I say, because most of them have never been to the Sistine Chapel, and uh, most of them have never seen anything art in their life, okay? And I ask them this question. And I'd ask you this, and I'm not, if you know, I want you to, to, to answer this question from your insides. Which one of those hands is God? 
No, no, I'm talking about what, what do you feel? I'm talking about how you live your life. I'm talking about what you think God's intention really is with you. Because I meet person after person after person that when they answer this question honestly, this is God. Eh, you know, if you can kind of get over here, I'll help you out. I'm not here to argue about the painting. I'm not here to argue about that. What I'm here to say is that I think that down deep in many of us, there's a sense in which God is not that intent on us. And I use this thing, and, and, and of course, again, because students don't know who it is, and they've never seen a painting, you know, in their life. <laughs> unless it was on YouTube. Uh, and, and, and saying that, so, and, and a lot of them will say, well, Cliff, I think it's this hand. So you're telling me a whole lot about what you think about God. You're telling me a whole lot of how you perceive Him. You're telling me a whole lot about what you think God's intentions really are. Is God this reluctant, this reserved, if you will, kind of being that you better do your best to get to Him? Or is He this one? And you know the answer. Becky said to me, make sure that picture is taken care of. And I did. You can see here, over here, this is God. Stretching as far as he can, stretching with this arm. And Adam, if you will, is somewhat lackadaisical. You know what? It, it, just, it just gets down into our, our, our soul and our feelings and our, uh, the Greek word is splankna, which means guts. <laughs> it gets down in us to say, what is God's intent with me? Is God that intent on me? Is God that intent to reach me? Is God that intent to be involved with me? I can tell you, uh, some time ago, long time ago, back before I was cultured and uh, traveled, you know, outside of Texas, um, if you would have asked me the answer to that question some years ago, I would have said, this is God. I'm not talking about intellectually. I mean, I'm not talking about intellectually. I'm talking about how I relate to Him and how I think He relates to me. This is God. Always. Just, you know, well, if you can get here. The intent. What is God's intent? I'm going to tell you what they are. And I'm telling you, this word seek, it's a Greek word, zeteo. It comes from zealous or the idea of, you know, really amped up. It comes from the word zeal or zealousness. or This word seek only occurs two times with reference to God. And here it is, and you probably know one. One is God who seeks the lost. What is God's intent? It's to seek the lost. If you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Some months ago I was working through... I'm, I'm, I've decided since a conference I went to in November, I'm not reading anything but the Gospels for a year. Nothing but the Gospels. I'm not... Poor Paul, I just have to say goodbye to him, you know. I teach him every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but I'm not reading him. Go figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In Jesus, uh, in this event, whenever he met with Zacchaeus, who was a hated tax collector, they're not that loved nowadays, but really back then they were really hated, that uh, this hated tax collector, this traitor, if you will, to the nation, Jesus sees him in a sycamore tree, and for the Lord to see if he came a walking... No, don't sing the song. Okay. You remember that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Stop it. (laughs) I said sing, not mumble. 
Anyway, so he, he calls him down out of the sycamore tree down in Jericho and takes, they go home and they have a meal. And, and when Jesus is confronted or discusses this matter, he says this, Today salvation has come to this house because he too, Zacchaeus, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The son, that, that, that's the only time the word seek shows up in reference to what God is doing. Lots of other times the word seek, you seek first the kingdom of God, talking about us. You know, seek, you know, don't seek to have treasures on earth. But, you know, that's about us. When it refers to God, it relates specifically to this matter that God, or Jesus is seeking the lost. I, I was reflecting on this some weeks ago whenever I was working through this in my own devotions. And I thought, what a blessed truth here. Jesus does not just stand there and say, if you're interested in being saved, you can come make your way to me. If you're interested in being found, if you'll act right and straighten up and fly right a little better, then, then you can be saved. Jesus says, my mission, my role, my life is to seek out and to seek and to save those who are lost. This isn't the idea of moralizing. This isn't the idea of telling people how to live. This isn't the idea of trying to get people to straighten up their life. This is the idea of Jesus saying, this is why I came. I came, I am in the process. My intent, my intentions are to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. I mean, here's what I was thinking the other day. How wonderful it is to say that Jesus is the one who is seeking. A guy asked a little girl one time, we, we use this kind of language, have you, know, have you found the Lord? You ever heard people say that? She was so smart as a kid, she goes, I didn't know he's lost. <laughs> I mean, really, when we, when we think about this, that, that the, the, the burden of it is on us often to think that we need to seek Him, that, that we need to be intentional about that. I'm, I'm telling you, the Bible here tells me that what God is intentional about, what His intent is, is to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, if you've ever been on a trip and uh, you didn't know where you were, uh, you were you were out of relationship to your destination. You know, you 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 you, you can't find the place. I remember uh, one time Becky and I were in Kansas City, and um, I have a real good sense of of uh, direction, except when a city is built in a circle uh, <laughs> around that creek, and and I remember driving around. And uh, Becky's saying, don't you think we should stop? And I said, for what? She said, well, it might be helpful if we knew where we were going. And I said, well, I know where I'm going, to the hotel. I'm just trying to find the way. <laughs> and I have always resented, I just have always resented that all GPS devices have women's voices. <laughs> just resent it. Anybody with me? Any guy, come on. Come on, guys. Yeah. We kept driving. I, I wasn't telling her as fast as I was because I kept seeing things the second time. She didn't see it, but I kept thinking. Uh, now, when you're lost, your destination, you want to know where you want to go or you're interested in that, but you're out of relationship with that destination. You, you, you're not going in the right direction. You're not, you're not finding where you need to go. I, I mean, I was all over the place, all over Kansas City down there by the plaza. I wasn't going to find it until I found someone who knew the way, who finally knew the way. And then Becky, after she beat me over the head with a map, uh, then we made it. You see, 
Jesus is saying to us, you're out of relationship with God. You're lost. You don't know where to go. I, I, I couldn't figure this out. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I have a real good sense of direction, and I kept thinking, I can do this. I can do this. Just give me more time, you know. But I couldn't find my way. And, and the idea that, that we're expecting people who are lost, we're expecting people who aren't followers of Jesus to find their way contradicts the very intent of Jesus here when he said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Do you know what? Jesus is seeking people today. You know what? He sought you. If you know him and you have a relationship with him, you know he sought you. Something began to happen. Someone said something. You went to a place or heard a song or heard something happen or you heard God's word expand. Something happened where you knew this God is not like this. He's like this. He is reaching as far as he can. Oh, the blessed truth here. This is huge. It's why Jesus came to the earth. So as to give people hope and understanding that the lost can be found, that the lost will be sought, and that Jesus himself said, this is why I came, to seek and to save the lost. Do we do, do, we do that? Do we seek the lost or are we offended by them? You know, sometimes we see people do things and we're just offended by it. We, we, we see people do things we think are wrong and bad and, and, and we're offended by it. Jesus wasn't. Jesus saw them. He went and had dinner with them. He spent time with them. He, 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 he was willing to say, I'll do the seeking here. I'm not going to make you seek me. I'll come find you. Do we do that? I, I fear that at times that we forget that this is Jesus' intent. And this is what we need to know about God. That His intent, His desire is to seek the lost. Not condemn them. Not get mad at them, not tell how bad they are, but to seek them out. If you've ever been lost, you know, I was in a car, but I remember when I was a kid, eight years old, I got lost at the Texas State Fair. At least that's a story my dad kept telling me. <laughs> Which, I don't know. <laughs> you, you think I'm wild now, you should see me at eight. I remember uh, getting lost uh, in the car display thing. I liked cars back then. I still do. I, I remember getting lost there. And that's a big place. And I was from a little town 90 miles west, east of there. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I remember that as I felt that kind of panic, sort of, you know, like, okay, where are my parents? You know, because <laughs> my dad had told me some things before that I thought he may be taking me up on this now. <laughs> Remember, I told you one time, I said, look, I didn't ask to be born. And he said, if you would, the answer would have been no. So I remember that. So my, my dad tells me some of this because I, re, I remember. So my dad said, I just stood there. I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to talk to. I, I didn't know where to happen. I can tell you this. As I stood there. I saw my dad coming toward me. And my dad had been frantic to find his son. What I have to do? Stay there. Just stand there. And my dad is making his way through the crowd. I can see him coming. And he's going to get to me one way or the other. Because that's his son who's lost. I can't find my way. I don't know. Listen, 
we need to think, if we want to use the word lost people, are not followers of Jesus. They're lost. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. The devil, the Bible says, the God of this world has blinded their eyes to where they can't even see. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Blinded them. Just, just blind them. And, and, and we're sitting around, instead of sometimes going to them and seeking them, we want to correct them. Or we're going to tell them where they're wrong. How about we just take on what Jesus did and just start seeking people out? And start saying, do you know the way? Are you, you know, what's going on in your life? Do you need help? How can we? But, but Jesus was constant. He's like a heat-seeking missile to people. He found the disenfranchised. He found the people that have been put. This is what's going to be fun about this series. I, I, I just, uh, I've been looking at some of the, how that Jesus went to Samaria. He went to these places. He found. So this idea of, of that Jesus is seeking the lost. Are we? Are we? Is that the word that comes to your mind when you think about lost people? Is that the word that comes to your mind when you think about people in your neighborhood or at your job? Are we seeking them? Or are we trying to correct them? Are we trying to straighten them out? I want to suggest to you that if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be that light of the world. If we're going to be that light, that part of our light should reflect this intention of Jesus. I'm going to give you another one here real quick. This is the only other time that this word shows up. In John chapter 4, if you look at that, this word seek, this again is God's intent. What is God intending to do? How do we reflect that as His light? In John chapter 4, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time because this is one of the conversations I want to spend a good deal of time and we start this in a few weeks. In John chapter 4, uh, you'll notice here that uh, Jesus is uh, by, by a well uh, with a Samaritan woman. I won't go into all that detail there. And uh, He talks to her about water. And this is going to be an interesting thing as we talk about how Jesus brings water to people. Uh, she begins to talk to him. He tells her, okay, I know who you are. You've got five husbands and the guy you're living with now you're not married to. And it's kind of interesting. Some people re- reflect on this idea. Uh, and he's, when, she, when he kind of tells her uh, what is going on, uh, in verse 19 she goes, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And the place where men ought to worship. Now, here's what she does. She tries to take it from personal to theological. <laughs> okay, you, you, you know who I am. But because of the way I've been treated by so many others, by men particularly, and by other Jews, I don't want to talk about my life. Because I've been, patron, I've been, I've been ostracized by every person in the community. We'll talk about that. Why she's at the well. You probably know that at a certain time. But she begins to try to engage Jesus in a theological discussion about worship. I want you just to note in your Bible, do this. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she's referring in Samaria to Mount Gerizim. In Mount Gerizim, if you recall, in the, when the Exodus, when Charlton Heston was bringing everybody through there. <laughs> Remember him. When they got to the promised land, there were two mountains. One is Gerizim and one is Ebal. And between them, Moses put everybody on each mountain and they rehearsed the blessings of the covenant and the curses of the covenant. Remember, Ebal is where the curses were because it was evil. Ebal, evil, you know, kind of associate that. And Gerizim were where the, where the, if you will, the promises of the covenant were, were spoken and declared by the people. Well, the Samaritans, who are a 
mixed group now of Jews and Gentiles decide that they're going to build their own rival temple. And they build it on top of Mount Gerizim, which is kind of a neat place. It's the first place they ever stepped foot in the promised land. There's a reason for that to say that that might be it. But she begins to talk to him and she goes, our fathers worshipped at this mountain. I just want you to draw. I don't have time to unpack all this, but I want you to look down at verse 21. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. See what she said? Our fathers, if you will, worshipped in this mountain. And Jesus said, you got it wrong. It's not our fathers, it's what? The Father. The Father. See, tradition, all, all that, you know, our fathers worshipped here, that's great, it's, it's okay to value that. But you got this all wrong. It's not about what our fathers did, it's about what? Worshipping the Father. Now notice this. You worship what you do not know, we worship. But notice what Jesus said in verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Such people the Father seeks. The only other time that the word seek is used in reference to God. The one is that Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Here Jesus says, this is the kind of person the Father seeks. What? Is someone who worships the Father in spirit and in truth. Isn't it interesting that God is looking for lost people and He's looking for worshipers? Interesting. That the only two times this word occurs with reference to God has to do with finding the lost and finding worshipers. Jesus says, this is not about your fathers. This is about the Father. This is not about your tradition, as wonderful as some of our traditions might be. It is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Jesus says neither Gerizim, if you go back and read that, nor Jerusalem. Neither one of them. He says this, the answer is that God is a spirit and He has to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The worship of a particular time or place is fine. It brings structure to our lives. But the understanding is that God seeks people to worship Him all the time in spirit and in truth. One writer said it like this. Sometimes when people hear this, uh, you know that we can worship God in spirit anywhere, he calls this the golfer's interpretation of this passage. <laughs> you know, the golfer's interpretation. Hey, I can worship God out on the golf course. Listen, I played golf with some of you guys, and that's not what's coming out of your mouth. <laughs> that's sorry. Yeah, hallelujah. You know. <laughs> Right, that, that, that's not what's going on. I've been out there with you guys. See, Jesus said, it's not this place or that place. It's not located in a location. It's not a particular thing. It is that God is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit. And some have suggested, if you will, that this idea of the spirit is that we are engaged not only in some kind of activity, but we're involved at the innermost depths of our life. You ever gone to church and sang words you didn't mean? You ever gone to church and bowed your head and never prayed? It can happen. It doesn't always have to happen. 
But the idea, you could be at Mount Gerizim or you can be in Jerusalem or you can be at Crossings Community Church. God's looking for worshipers. A friend of mine who was in ministry one time had a, a statement on his desk that said, God respects you when you work for Him, but you give Him joy when you worship. He respects you. He, you know, that's great. Way to go. But when you worship. One of the interesting things about this word worship, proskuneo, or some other terms that are used here is this. Worship is the idea of ascribing worth. That, that's what the Anglo-Saxon word means, to ascribe worth. So I'm ascribing worth to God. I mean, my students, I talk to them about, you know, I, there's some music styles I don't like. My dad always thought I'd never go to heaven because I, I just can't stand quartet music. I don't know what it is about it. I know I'm, I'm probably not going to heaven over this, but I don't like it. But I don't ask that kind of question when I'm listening to it. I'm just asking, when will it be over? No, I'm not. I'm not. No, no. That's not the question I'm asking, I promise. I'm asking the question, are these words, are these ideas, are they ascribing worth to God? It's not my style. It's not my preference. It's, you know, I like rock and roll. But the idea is, is that worship is to ascribe worth to God. Listen, there have been times when I was having throat trouble, uh, you know, because I talk all the time. And have allergies. That's why I don't mow. Uh, it is a real physical condition. Um, <laughs> but there are times when I go to church when I can't speak. But I sit there and move my lips to say, God, if I can't say a word, I want to worship and ascribe worth to you. Maybe you can't sing. I, I get that. I, I understand that. Maybe, maybe you don't feel comfortable in that kind of thing. But God is looking for people, whether in church or at home or in your car on the golf course, to give praise and worship Him. Now, now that sounds kind of egotistical. So we think, well, God must be some egomaniac. Worship me, worship me, worship me, you know. No, not the idea. The Bible, I think, ascribes this, and others suggest this idea, that we tend to gravitate and move toward and worship what we value. We tend to move toward and, and, and gravitate and, and, and become what we worship and what we honor and give thanks to. I, I, worship isn't just God's some megalomaniac that needs people to worship Him because He's so insecure. He's knowing that what we gravitate toward and worship is that we become like. We value, we honor Him. So Jesus says here, that's what God is looking for. You ever think about that today? Maybe, maybe he's in heaven this morning looking out when, he go, when we go to church later. And he's looking around and saying, where are they? Where, where are those guys? Oh, there's one. Yeah, I see that over there. I see that person over there. Yeah, they're, they're worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, it take me a long time to unpack all this, but let me just say this. Spirit suggests an internal reality. An internal reality. It can happen on the golf course, in the car, wherever. It's not, it's not limited to a location. This is what the Jews had done and what the Samaritans did. It's got to happen here. I'm all for that. I love coming to church. I love raising my voice with other people. But it's something that has to be inward. And truth, I think, is the notion here is this. That whatever we understood about God before, it is always understood in the person of Jesus. He's the truth. So as we worship God, we worship His Son. 
through the power of the Spirit. That worshiping in truth is that it's always bringing glory and honor and ascribing worth to Jesus. He is the truth. Now, i got to hurry. I have four minutes. Notice also in Matthew 5 that Jesus said, You're the light of the world. And I've suggested that we're the reflection of God, trying to reflect what we know about God. And then he writes about this, about our actions. So he said, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let me, let me just suggest this real quick here, is the kind of action that our lives should show forth. The word here is used, it's an interesting term. The word good, good works. I, I, I just, I, I just want to kind of press us a little bit here. I'm nervous. I, just, I'll, I'll out myself on this, okay? I'm just personally nervous with our culture for, for Christians or followers of Jesus, if what we do for others, good works, has a religious agenda. That's just me. It doesn't have to be you. It is me. It makes me nervous. When I, see, Jesus said, let, uh, do, uh, uh, let your light shine so men may see your good work. The word good here translated beautiful and useful. Useful. Kalas. Kalah. This Greek word here has the idea of something that is beautiful, useful, and winsome. In other words, people like it. They think, man, this is awesome what you're doing. What I'm concerned about, and when I was even in seminary, Becky and I had these, these conversations. I, I, we, we met some people. Or we, or we, we, what we decided was there were lots of young couples in our, in our apartment complex. We got a video series, and we just decided we would show it in the, in the game room. Just do that. Because parents have trouble raising kids, don't they? And I said to Becky, to some extent this, if we never get to share the gospel at all, I'm okay with it. Is it a good thing to help parents to keep from pulling their hair out of their head to raise their kids? Yeah. Is it a good thing to give people what they need? Without the agenda. Now I'm telling you, the reason I'm saying that is because people already suspect that followers of Jesus already have an agenda. If you help me with water, I'm going to have to listen to some gospel presentation. If you bring me food, I'm going to have to go to a service. Jesus said this, Do your good deeds in such a way that people glorify your Father who's in heaven. Well, look at that second. But doing your good works. I'm concerned that we de this is a crazy word deagendaize ourselves and get some new vision to say as a follower of Jesus it is enough for me to do a good work that is useful and beautiful and winsome to someone whether I ever get to share the gospel or not. Let me ask you this: How do you feel when people call you up on the phone and they're all happy chatty? Because they have an agenda. Do you like talking to people like that? Do you love it when people take you out to lunch and then say to you, hey, by the way, i got a question I need to ask you. I've got a law thing. Right? You like that, right? Nobody does. Nobody does. What I'm asking for us to consider is would we be willing to do good deeds because they're good? Not because it gives us an agenda or a platform, but allows us to be the followers of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if you do that, let me just sidebar here. Let me tell you something. 
Some of us are uptight when we do things for people because we've got to find a way to bring the gospel in. And that makes us nervous and uptight and people pick it up. They say, you're weird. I get that a lot. Right? You know what? Why don't you drop the agenda and do the good thing? And in a relaxed atmosphere where you're doing good because it needs to be done, somebody might just ask you why you're doing it. And I just subscribe to the notion that the student will be able to be taught or the teacher will appear when the student is ready to be taught. Maybe de-agendaize it. Maybe just say, I'm going to do this because it's good. And if I never get to talk about Jesus, I'm still going to do it because it's what? Good. Am I saying don't share with people? I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. We have a problem in ourselves. We're so uptight and we're so nervous that we've got to share the gospel. People pick the agenda up. And that's why you don't like doing it. What if you could just do something good for somebody this week and leave it alone? And maybe we might get known as people that if you ask us, we'll tell you. But we're not here on an agenda. If you need food, we're going to give you food. If you need water, we're going to get you water. If you need help raising kids, we're going to help you raise kids. That, why? Because it's a good thing. Now, the last thing, I've got to hurry. We've got to finish. Here's what you can do next week. What could you do this, that would be considered a good work that simply meets the needs of another person? Listen, this will set you free. This will let you be able to do good things for people and enjoy it. And somebody might have the guts sometimes to say, Hey, why are you doing this? Well, you know, the guy I serve told me to do it. Well, who's the guy you serve? Jesus. Really? Because most of you guys are weird. <laughs> the last thing here. This thing about being a light about our actions. The goal of our actions. Look what it says. Jesus said what? So you can glorify your Father in heaven. I wish I had more time on this. And, you know, if I wasn't so mouthy, I probably would. I want to tell you something. The word glory. The word glory means honor. It's kavod in Hebrew. It means heavy. Substantive. Kavod. In Hebrew, it's, or in Greek, it's doxa. It means to honor. It means to honor. John Piper's made a great story. He says, to make much of. I like that. that. To glorify God is to make much of Him. That's a more user-friendly kind of idea. Now, now, Jesus said, you to do these works to glorify your Father in heaven. Go read this later. It's in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Can I tell you something that might help you in your life? It's helped me, and I work with my students. And I, I've got a quote here by Bonhoeffer you need. I know you people that have a, this need to fill in blanks. There it is. I've discovered over my lifetime in working with students myself is this, that sometimes in my life when I'm working or doing things, or I'm even tempted with things, quit asking the question, is this right or wrong? Should I do this or not? Ask this question. When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to go a different way, ask this question. Don't say, is it wrong? Am I going to get caught? Will it be bad? Ask this question. Will doing this glorify God? Get it on that footing. Get it on the footing that I'm living my life to glorify God. Whatever it is. Any decision, any question that I have to make to say. I'm not going to say, well, is it, is it wrong or is it right or is it good or is it evil? Those are the questions that we're trying to kind of run the, the margins on. Instead of saying, does this bring glory to God? I love what Bonhoeffer said. Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than courageously and actively doing God's will. To this week to say, you know what? I'm not going to ask the question, is it right or is it wrong? Is it sinful? Is it good? Is it holy? I'm going to ask this question. Does it make me make much 
of God? Does it enable me to make much of it? I want to tell you what's happened in my life over the years. Somehow that question and somehow that approach cuts the root to temptation. I'm just to try it. I dare you. When you're tempted to do something or, or be involved, just ask this question. Look, not right or wrong. Do I want to, is this going to help me make much of God? I've just watched this over my, the years. It just cuts the root. Because it's not that I live sinless, or it's not that I holy, or those, those are all important things. It's that, is my life bringing glory to God? Is it making much of it? So if I find something, and I see it, and I say, you know what, this isn't going to help me make much of God. Don't do it. Okay. Because my goal in life is what? To make much of God. So your salt and your light, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And in the process of this, our lives, if you will, are being lived to bring glory to God. So here's the key thing here real quick. I'm going to let you go. What's the goal of your life? This week as you make decisions, ask this. Which option will enable me to bring glory to God. We're not finished, but we're done on the dialectic. I'll see you next week.